I'm John L. Daly filling in for the amazing Jill Bennett. We now are plunging into the mechanics of hand washing with Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, an expert on infectious diseases. Good morning, Jason. Well, hello there. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Uh, it's great to be joining you. So tell me, have you been scrubbing your hands? Well, I mean, I wash my hands just as I normally have. Uh, you know, when you keep up a good pace and you know when you should be doing it, uh, you don't need to be doing it anymore just because there's another virus hanging around. Well, I guess, you know, that's a good thought. But, uh, I, you know, it's funny, uh, and my friends say this to me, you know, it's it's kind of like you go to the washroom. Like, let's, let's say you're at an event, you're at a hotel, and there's a big dinner and whatnot, and then the main speaker finally sh- stops talking. <laughs> and uh, so everybody pours into the washroom, and you go from the, the stands and the stalls back around to where the uh, the, the, the sinks are. And it's amazing. I mean, some people, it's just like a very quick little sprinkle of water on their hand and then maybe a paper towel and out the door. Unfortunately, you sometimes see somebody who doesn't, you know, they look at the lineup at the at the wash basins and they say, yeah, not for me. And bingo, they're grabbing the handle of the door. Ooh, <laughs> uh, not pleasant. So, okay, let's get down to it. Uh-huh. What should we really be doing? You know, it seems like, you know, we learned this when we were three or five years old. But, you know, when you think about it, uh, I guess everybody's got their own. And, and you, do, you kind of do it like on autopilot. You don't really think about it. But what should we be doing to properly wash our hands? And why is it important to wash your hands to stop something that is transmitted through the air, through droplets, mostly from your nose and maybe from your mouth? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing you need to realize is that uh, when those droplets come out, they have weight to them, so they'll drop down um, to the floor, which isn't all that big of a deal, but the surfaces, which kind of is a big deal. Um, And uh, when you sort of touch those surfaces, Mm. uh, you then can pick up enough virus that can go into your mouth or into your nose. And then you're thinking, well, how does it go from your hand to your nose to your mouth? And you realize it's about 16 times an hour that you're doing this without even thinking about it. So that's why you want to have those hands clean. As for making sure that you do, remember, hand washing is all about removing whatever happens to be on your hands Mm -hmm. that you don't want. So not only are you going to, you know, get a good rinse of your whole hand and not just, you know, the little fingertips, um, you're also going to put some soap on there because soap has a surfactant and that sort of lathers up and, and helps to remove whatever is on your hands. So just let me quickly interrupt here for a moment. So for people who aren't familiar with the concept of uh, a water molecule and surfactant, maybe just explain to us what it is that soap does how it combines with water and how it'll latch on to something and help get it to go away down the drain. Yeah, absolutely. So what ends up happening is that with dirt and grime and all these things, they're kind of oily. And oily likes to stick to other things. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that these surfactants will break up the oil so that they no longer can stick around. It also is really helpful because, well, to be honest with you, uh, the coronavirus and, and other viruses like the flu, they also have that sort of oily layer around them, and so it breaks them mm-hmm. up as well. So kind of, you know, two birds with one stone. But you've got to lather up, and then you've got to cover your whole hand. 
And in doing so, it's going to take you about 20 full seconds to do this, which is one of the reasons why uh, they suggest that, you know, sing Happy Birthday twice or say the alphabet backwards or take any Taylor Swift song and sing the chorus, including the la la's. (laughs) Um, and, And then when you've done that, then you're going to rinse all the sort of lathering and all of that off because then it's removing it, sending it into the drain. So it's somebody else's problem and not yours. Mm-hmm. And then when that is completed, then you're going to dry those hands. And honestly, there's no real difference between the paper towel and the hand dryer. But if you have a paper towel, it allows you to turn taps off if they're not automatic and touch that door that somebody who didn't wash their hands probably has touched so you're not recontaminating your hands. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's just back up to the leathering part. So when you say lather up, do you mean you should actually be able to see sort of like a whitish foam on your hands? With the majority of soaps that are out there, absolutely. It's the Mm -hmm. one, like there are some soaps that really don't lather up. Um, uh, I'm sure that numerous mechanics who are listening are like, well, my orange stuff doesn't really lather up. And that's fine, right? Because what's happening is that they haven't really incorporated um, uh, an ingredient to make it look lathery. But by the same respect, um, it's still doing the job of breaking up all that grease and grime. It's killing all those, you know, enveloped or oily viruses and, and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, now we've got to the point where we've dried our hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that people are touching their face 16 times an hour? Yeah, there have been uh, observational studies just to see how often people touch their face. And yeah, it's on average, uh, well, it's actually 15.7, but I like to round up. <laughs> wow. So, okay, so there's real science behind this. People have actually done the, uh, the done the measurements and done the math. And I guess mm-hmm. some people, you know, depending on whether or not you've got sniffles or you've got an itch or something, you might be higher than that. This oh, is okay. how the... Uh, diseases or the uh, viruses are getting transmitted back and forth between our hand, very your hair, uh, your mouth, your eyes, etc., is by mm-hmm. this subconscious almost uh, movement uh, where you're you're likely to reinfect yourself. Yeah, um, and, and I think that's something that people really need to sort of think about, um, and, and not just now because we have the COVID-19, but I mean, anytime we have cold and flu season, these are always sort of the the most important things to think about. Uh, And as for me, you know, I've been traveling a lot over the years. Uh, I use, you know, always thinking about this when I'm in an airport, uh, when I'm in an airplane, Mm -hmm. when I'm in a hotel. (laughs) I mean, once it becomes part of your second nature, uh, surprisingly, you don't get paranoid. But what you do is become a little bit more understanding of how microbes can travel and and how to sort of what we call interrupt that spread. Okay. So here's where I was going with this thing. So if it's 15.7 or 16 times an hour, uh, how often then, since I've just washed my hands and I've come out of the washroom or the the bathroom or something at home, uh, when do I go back? When do I need to do it again? Well, I mean, it, it really all depends on the, the types of surfaces that you're touching as well as uh, how often you're doing this. Um, you know, if, if you happen to be uh, just kind of wandering around your own home, mm-hmm. it's not that big of a deal. If you are out and about, um, you know, going from uh, one place to another using public transportation and stuff like that, there's a good chance you may come into contact with uh, potential pathogens, viruses, whatever. Um, if you're out 
you know, in the ski hills, it's not going to be there. <laughs> so <laughs> it really comes down to one major factor, and that is uh, essentially the density and the turnaround of humans in that environment. Mm-hmm. And if there's lots of humans and there's lots of turnaround, there's lots of germs and lots of potential. If you are in an area that is very isolated where there's not a lot of people or there's lots of distance between people, you're probably not going to be worrying about it. And if you're in your own home, unless you have a sick family member or, or roommate, and I mean sick as an ill, yeah. um, then you want to make sure that you're you know, paying attention. So for argument's sake, you know, let's say I'm at work where I am right now. Um, should I sort of like make it a rule that maybe once an hour I either use the uh, the hand sanitizer or go to the washroom and scrub my hands? I mean, it, it really depends on sort of your own. Uh, like, what can you do mm-hmm. uh, for for something like? I could do that. Yeah, I mean, if you could do that, that that's great. If you're in an office space, okay, um, you are going to be uh, in a high turnover of people. Um, there is the likelihood of more uh, potential for infectious disease spread, et cetera, et cetera. So it's good not only to think about your hands, uh, but also to think about the surfaces that are around you. That's why you know you should have the wipes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but again, you should also be sort of understanding that if you've got your own cubicle and nobody else is around you, uh, it's not that big of a deal. But if you're, say, going into meetings and you're shaking hands with people, et cetera, et cetera, then it's good to have that hand sanitizer with you. Jason, we've only got a minute left. I want to quickly find out from you, what about the temperature of the water? I turn on the sink here at NW and man, it is tepid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I I have people yelling at me, uh, Jason, the water is too cold. And yes, I know the water is cold and it should be warm or at least tepid. But the reality is that once you've gotten that lathering done, it doesn't matter what the temperature of the water happens to be as long as it's coming off. It's just that, you know, it'd be nice if we could use warmer water. But if you end up doing a rinse that's a lot faster as a result of the cold water, then that's great. And maybe then, you know, having those hand dryers will help because they'll be warmer. Right on. Right on. Jason Tetro, host of the super awesome Science Show podcast. Where do I find your podcast? Oh, you can find it at any podcast station, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Basically, if you listen to a podcast, just type in Super Awesome Science Show, and you'll find it, you'll listen to it, you're going to have a great time, you'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll wonder why science wasn't this interesting when you were in school. Right on. Love it. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon, Jason. Uh, Here's a story out of Sky News. Coronavirus pandemic more serious for the airline industry than 9-11 and the financial crisis. Jobs will be lost, the boss of British Airways warns. He says, it's a crisis of global proportions like no other that we have known. Please do not underestimate the seriousness of this for our company. Jobs will be lost, perhaps for a short period, perhaps longer term. Aircraft grounded in a way that the airline has never had to do before. That from the head of British Airways. On the line now from North Idaho, Don Trumbull, former airline exec. Good morning. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. But I, uh, you know, I must say the implications of this situation uh, with this pandemic and Trump now uh, finally declaring it a national emergency in the states uh, his uh, 
30-day ban on uh, travel from Europe must be a real kick in the pants to the uh, not just American carriers, but international carriers. Yeah, yeah, salt on a wound. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 uh, it's tough to manage things like this, and it's the unknowns. You know, it's the unknowns that get the airlines and get our industries and, and get us, you know, us, us regular folk here on the ground. It's got to be uh, exceedingly troubling to anybody who works in the airline industry, let alone the executives who are responsible for sort of, you know, keeping uh, the bottom line black, not red, uh, to look at something right. like this with the... Uh, as you say, the unknown. So, for example, recently we've seen not just uh, planes that have to be, you know, sanitized and scrubbed down in a way that, you know, you, you, you're no way you're going to be able to pull off a 30-minute or a, a one-hour turnaround given what has to be done right. now. But on top of that, we end up with, uh, in some airlines, we've had, uh, you know, cabin crew members come down with the, uh, with the illness, with COVID-19. Then we've had some pilots. Uh, American Airlines had a pilot who booked off uh, testing positive. Uh, Air New Zealand apparently right. has had that. JetBlue just recently uh, banned a passenger for life because he was potentially uh, uh, infectious, flew on the airline, and then when he landed, uh, told them that he had tested positive. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and they're getting hit from all sides, you know, from within their their own crews, you know. And gosh, once the crews start getting it, mm -hmm. and crews are tight knit. They're in tight quarters. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to be back in the in the passenger cabin, but up in the cockpit, uh, you know, in the crew rooms, those are mm -hmm. tight quarters. Sure. So, and and just look at spreading. You know yeah, and Don, when you think about it, like on a long flight, you got a transnational flight or an international flight, you know, going over the Pacific or the Atlantic, uh, something like that. You look at the cabin crew and look at the amount of space that they're in, uh, you know, in by the commissary and so forth. They're in this tiny little spot for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, you know, either taking a break or, you know, getting the meals in or cleaning up after having done uh, cabin service. Holy smokes, man! I right. mean, the, the chances that somebody's yeah. going to sneeze or sneeze or cough, whoo! Yeah, yeah. You know, and I I think that's that's where we're getting, John. Is you know, and, and we I think we all suspected that this was going to happen. And, and sure, there's there's the the group that just wanted to ignore it and, and hope it would never come mm -hmm. and just hope it away. But we've seen it spread everywhere else, and and it. Thankfully, it's a little bit slower. We had some time to get prepared here and and here in North America and Canada. Yeah, but it's now here, so mm. it's uh, it's going to keep spreading. And you know, the airlines are running out of room. Uh, I know they're working hard and they're trying to mitigate this as good as they can. You know, airlines are all about safety, so they're doing everything they can do. They've got to watch the bottom dollar. But there comes a point where, you know, things just kind of get out of control. And the only safe thing to do is to is to ground the airplanes. Yeah. So, you know, right now we're running on reduced lows, but I suspect that's coming. Grounding aircraft. But then canceling, again, it's an unknown. Canceling flights. 
I guess I, I guess it's inevitable, isn't it, Don? I suspect so. Yeah, but you know, we just don't know. I mean, it maybe maybe it will just fizzle away. Maybe spring will come. You know, I was thinking that yesterday, but we're down here in, in North Idaho, and I know you, this this probably this came from you guys. Thanks, John. We got a winter <laughs> storm here. Yeah, I heard. <laughs> And, you know, it just, we were having nice 50 degree temperatures. And then now, what is it? It's 12 degrees and blowing 60 miles an hour and Mm. trees are down. So, you know, winter's here, but maybe spring will warm things up and that will have an effect. Well, the the president uh, seems to think that he he said that earlier on that somehow if, uh, you know, once we get to spring, the warm temperatures will sort of uh, kill or eradicate the virus. I don't know. I don't know about that. Right. So. Right. Right. It's 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 an unknown. And, you know, it's very likely this this could linger. And, you know, there's there's people talking about how it can, you know, you go up on these plateaus and. You know, the plateau levels off, it drops a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it comes back. So something like that would have a catastrophic effect as well. And, you know, the worst-case scenario, it is out there. And I know the airlines are, are thinking about it. They're, they're worried about it. And, you know, for the airlines, there's, there's really only so much they can do. But, uh, you know, we've got to think about the other industries, the other uh, cascading effects. Once the airlines go down, public transportation goes down, and you've got, uh, you know, this everybody's separated. The workforce can, it can take a big hit, and that can have a, a catastrophic effect on our ability to, you know, survive. Absolutely. Basic food, basic water, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, you know, the airlines are uh, and the air, the airports wouldn't exist without the airlines and the airports are, are major economic generators. Uh, they're providing a lot of employment. Yes. And uh, as you say, you know, it's a critical source. <laughs> Just imagine if somebody comes up with a vaccine, how are you going to get it around the world? So <laughs> unbelievable. Good point. Don, give us a, a, yeah. a hint. What's the margin like in, in uh, the, the airline business? I mean, whether it's charter business or whether it's SCED, uh, what sort of, uh, you know, sort of wiggle room do, do these companies have? Because mm-hmm. let's face it, the, the airline industry has gone through a lot so far. I mean, you know, a lot of yes. people had, they, they had bought uh, Max 737s uh, and, of course, the Max 8 is, uh, you know, not getting delivered. Um, we've seen Boeing uh, basically laying off, uh, you know, thousands of people. Um and then right. and then we have this situation. Um, suddenly, it's like a double whammy. It is. It is. And, you know, when everything's running smoothly, uh, the business model works real well. You know, uh, the margins are low, and that's why they've got to run very efficient. They've got to have, uh, you know, they need their airplanes filled. Mm-hmm. and canceling flights, you know, here and there is fine. They can absorb that. But when you've got something like this, uh, just like 9-11, you know, it, it was unrecoverable given the scenario. And, you know, thank goodness they were able to 
get help from the federal government. You know, these, yeah. the, the air carrier industry is part of our critical infrastructure. So we need, that's what government does very well for bailing out these critical industries when, when something like this comes, comes up. But mm-hmm. uh, to answer your question, it's the, the margins are low. So when things start affecting efficiency, start affecting uh, flight loads, the bottom dollar goes uh, goes down real quick. And oh Doesn't look yeah. good. Yeah. Doesn't look good. So th- there's a lot of worry, but there's also, I, I know there's a lot of uh, hope as well. And our, you know, we can be pessimistic, we can be optimistic. I think the best thing to do is to be optimistic, but also realize that that worst case scenario is very plausible, very likely. And, uh, you know, we've got to figure out a way to uh, manage it, get through it, and then recover. And right it's it's going to take a lot. Our, yeah. our our main hope is that it's not long-term. If it's long-term, that's, that's going to be a difficult one. Short-term, we can handle. Let's pray for spring. Don Trumbull, former airline executive, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, John. Have, Have a, a good one. Okay, we know the demands of the BC healthcare system could skyrocket, and there are healthcare professionals, care aides, hospital administrators who've already tested positive for COVID 19, like three administrative staff at Lionsgate. And doctors could and likely will come down with the virus. So, what is the BC College doing? Dr. Heidi Otter is the head of the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons. Doctor, what is it that the uh, BC College of Physicians is doing now with respect to coping with what appears to be a crisis with this COVID-19? Yeah, so uh, at the request of Dr. Bonnie Henry, she asked that this college proceed with uh, emergency registration for eligible physicians. We took a look at this and we thought, we didn't think that there would be an awful lot of physicians that would be volunteering to come from other Canadian provinces to provide service in BC. I think every single province is gearing up to provide their own surge capacity. So what we have done is we've, we are in the process of sending out emails to every doctor who retired in the last two years mm-hmm. to see if they might be willing and available to come back and um, uh, work uh, with their hospital, wherever they retired from. Uh, to assist with uh, COVID-19. How unusual is it for you to reach out to retired MDs uh, in in a situation like this? We have never done it before. Wow. So this is sort of groundbreaking. It's uh, unprecedented. It is. Mm Mm-hmm. Indeed. Cool. And... uh, we, the NHS is going through a very similar pro, uh, process uh, in England. I've been on the phone with many of my fellow colleagues across Canada who regulate physicians in other provinces, and they too are pulling together lists of recently retired physicians and doing a reach out. We, we really kind of have to be creative and look at every opportunity to make sure that we have capacity to assist if we really need um, more doctors. Absolutely. So, Doctor, just to put this in perspective, how many MDs do we have in BC and how many retired MDs do we have? Uh, good question. We, we think we have about 13,000 physicians, plus or minus, who are currently in British Columbia and licensed for, uh, for independent practice. Uh, I'm going through a list line by line and we think that there's probably 
a couple of hundred who've retired recently, uh, not 10 years ago, not five years ago, but, you know, within the last two years who may wish to come back. And we're um, uh, sending them an email and asking them if they'd, uh, if they're interested. And if so, then we're connecting them with the health authority uh, in which we have um, uh, their last known address. Wow, that's excellent. So we might get maybe 100 or perhaps even 200 extra doctors well, if necessary, if they're willing. If, if they're willing, I think to uh, just to modify expectations, I think if we can get even a couple of dozen, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, going to be helpful. But, uh, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, the, the, who knows, we, we really lose contact with physicians once they sure. retire. They could have moved, they could be out of the country. They might mm-hmm. themselves be quarantined. I think Could there's be. all sorts of, um, yeah. yeah. Now, what, what is so, doc- uh, Yeah, sorry, doctor, go ahead. I was going to say, um, we, we're putting the, uh, the request out there and anything we can do to support the provincial health officer and the health authorities uh, in preparing for surge capacity. That's, uh, that's what we're focusing our energies on now. What will be the protocol for relicensing these physicians? Uh, we do require them to uh, re-sign a criminal record check. Uh, if they, in fact, left British Columbia and were working in another jurisdiction somewhere in the world, we will attempt to get a certificate of professional conduct from that jurisdiction to confirm that they remain in good standing. If they've been working outside of the province, we can do that verbally. We have uh, a telephone tree list that we can contact pretty much every jurisdiction in Canada and Washington State, or sorry, and the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they need to make an application to reapply to be a member of the Canadian Medical Protective Association so that they yes. have medical insurance, and then they're good to go. Wow. And uh, is there a cost for registration? Is Dr. Bonnie Henry going to cover that? Uh, no, we're going to do it for free. Wow. Hey, that's, that's your stepping up. That's very nice. Nice to hear. Now, do you really believe that the, um, you know, all of the efforts that are being made, both provincially and uh, nationally in Canada, do you think that we can flatten the curve? Uh, I'm confident that we have done an awful lot of planning. And by that, I mean the public health officers, the ministries of health, both federally and provincially, and when you just look at the numbers and you see how low, based on the size of Canada and the population that we have, I think we've done a, a really a, quite a good job uh, with that. And I'm quite confident that all of this uh, good planning in advance and a well-structured public health system is to Canadian citizens' advantage. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, particularly in British Columbia and uh, Dr. Mel Cradgerton out of the CDCBC uh, did a brilliant job of getting uh, the test up and running uh, right away so that we didn't get behind the eight ball the way it appears they did in many places in the States and particularly in Washington State. Yeah, we, you know, I think that there's lessons to be learned for sure from uh, countries such as China and Italy. Mm. But I think the fact that we've been doing so much testing and good contact tracing is is a really good, uh, a really good um, uh, initial uh, bit of work for this. Do you have any thoughts about what happened with Dr. Helen Chu down in uh, at the UW down in Washington? Um. 
you know, I'm I'm a regulator and I'm not a public <laughs> health expert, so <laughs> can't can't provide comments uh, what's happened south of the border. I but I I do know that uh, uh, the fact that we have a um, you know we actually have a uh, a provincial health officer who has sweeping powers under the Public Health Act is a just a, it puts BC in a very good footing. Well, I uh, must say, I am uh, gratified to hear what the College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons in BC is doing and uh, stepping up to the plate, and uh, I'm going to go wash my hands. Great. Keep washing them. Now, how is the Vancouver Coastal Health Region coping with the COVID-19 pandemic, and what can we, that means you and me, do to help? My namesake, Dr. Patty Daly, MD, Vice President, Public Health, Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. Good morning. Good morning, John. So nice to have you with us. So, uh, doctor, give us a bit of a picture of what's happening here in this region. Uh, I guess you might have a handle on how many COVID cases we have in our region. Yes, we, we have... Uh as of yesterday, identified 39 cases. There were 11 new cases yesterday reported in our region. You heard Dr. Bounty Henry give the new numbers with Minister Dix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 64 total in the province. So these are still small numbers. Uh, the, the majority of cases have been amongst travelers returning from uh, countries where there are, there are Uh, active outbreaks or ongoing transmission of COVID-19. We have had also local transmission. Um, Most of that has been in household settings to close household contacts, and that's typical for this virus. The greatest uh, risk of transmission is in households. But we have also had uh, an outbreak in a long-term care facility on the North Shore, Lynn Valley Care Centre, and more recently another smaller outbreak break, Holly House Long-Term Care Facility that actually is linked to the first one. And yesterday uh, we reported a cluster of cases among administrative staff at Lionsgate Hospital of three cases. So uh, many returning traveler cases, small number of household contacts, and those clusters have been reported in our region. So as an expert, uh, how do you feel we are coping with this? Are we, you know, the precautions that we've taken, uh, the advice that we've given, uh, do you think that we're doing a pretty good job? Well, first of all, I want to assure people that uh, we have been monitoring uh, COVID-19 since the first cases were identified in China given that we do have a lot of travel back and forth between China and other countries in that region. We have had active surveillance for imported cases. The first imported case in BC was identified in our region in Vancouver Coastal Health in a traveler who had been in uh, Wuhan, and that was in January. So we have had an active public health response, public health officials identifying new cases, following up on them and their contacts. And I think uh, one of the things that we've been very fortunate to have here in in BC is a provincial public health lab that was able to develop a test for COVID-19. Some of the concerns you might have heard south of the border, uh, the criticisms that might have led to spread 
has been the lack of availability of testing. Here in BC, we've done, well, as announced yesterday, almost 6,500 tests, and we'll be doing more over the coming days. And uh, because wow. we developed our own test and had it broadly available, we actually were able to identify cases. For example, one of the very first case, uh, cases from Iran that arrived in another country was identified right here in BC because the test was available to doctors. We didn't restrict who they could use it on. So that has really helped us to respond here. It was amazing. Uh, I think the CDC, uh, British Columbia uh, Center for Disease Control Lab, and Dr. Mel Cradgeton did a fabulous job. Uh, looks like they were looking over the horizon. They were watching in December uh, blooms of what looked like some sort of a, uh, I guess, pneumonia outbreaks in various parts of China. And they, they I guess, wisely figured this is probably going to turn out to be a, another virus, something in the neighborhood of a SARS. And so they got on top yeah, of it. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're really fortunate to have the BC Center for Disease Control, uh, an excellent group of epidemiologists, and Dr. Mel Crouch and my colleague, who, as you said, was very proactive. That He's also shared that test with hospitals in our region so that they can test people. So I think that, that has helped us. I should also add that the government of British Columbia and the Health Authority all have active emergency operations centers now up and running, uh, preparing for the response, uh, because we know we're going to get more cases and we want to try and uh, dampen the curve, so to speak, so that we can maintain a good access to quality care within the healthcare system. Uh, so that planning is well underway by professionals across the Health Authority in the province. So, Doctor, let's get down to the nitty-gritty in terms of, uh, you know, our listeners and me. Um, how do we figure out whether or not, if we have some symptoms, what should we do in terms of getting tested? Who do we, who, where, the, what do we do? Do we call 811? Do you call your doctor? What do you do? We have been telling people to call 811, but I, I will say that the, the risk to the, the general population in BC remains quite low, as I mentioned. Mm. Uh, the high risk uh, people are people who are, are returning travelers from countries that are affected. First, we saw China being affected. Numbers are actually down significantly there than Iran. And now we're seeing a lot of travelers from European countries where there are large numbers of cases, Italy and other countries. So those are the, the groups we want to focus on, uh, returning travelers from affected areas or people who have had contact with a known case. So we are, as we get cases identified here, we are identifying people who may have been in contact and those people should be priority for testing. If you have not traveled if you have not had a contact with a case and you get symptoms of a cold, we're not recommending that you go for testing. We're recommending that you stay home from school or work until the symptoms resolve. So the risk to the general population being low, we're not recommending that people go for testing if they're not at high risk. And certainly you shouldn't go for testing if you have no symptoms. The test is not effective until symptoms develop. So that's an important message as well. No kidding. No, see, I didn't know that. So that's very good to know. So we heard that uh, in one case, there were lineups like three hours at the uh, city center urgent and primary care uh, clinic. I guess that's on Hornby, uh, 1200 block of Hornby. 
Uh, is that That's because right. too we, many... we have had a, a, a lot of people come to our urgent primary care centers. I think uh, the good news is we, we gave the message that if you, ha- if you are in one of those high-risk groups and you only have mild symptoms, don't go to our hospital emergency departments because, we, first of all, those, the emergency departments should be preserved for, for people who truly have emergent illness. Yes. But also one of our goals in um, stopping the spread of this virus is to protect vulnerable populations because the, the virus causes more severe disease among the frail elderly and among people with underlying uh, health conditions such as heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. Mm-hmm. For healthy adults and children, it's actually not usually a very serious disease. Most of our cases have had symptoms that might be consistent with a cold or a case of the flu, and they've been, reco- they've been recovering at home. But if you have symptoms, we don't want you to go to an emergency department where there may be those vulnerable populations waiting to receive other care. So we have sent people to our urgent and primary care centers, but we know the demand for testing has been high, and that's one of the reasons why we want to get the message out there that, we, that, that people don't need to go for testing if they're not considered high risk. But, and I think you will see over the coming days uh, some uh, new opportunities for people to get tested in the community so that we can streamline testing and mm-hmm. take some of the pressure off some of those clinics. So we're finally going to get the drive throughs Well, I think stay tuned. We, we want to make it <laughs> as easy as possible to uh, test the people who, who we know uh, need to be tested that, that, so that we can take yeah. the actions we need to stop the spread of the virus. Well, yeah, I understand there's a news conference at uh, noon, and we'll probably find out about whether there'll be uh, drive-through testing like there is drive-through banking. And uh, that's a good thing. You know what? I, I'm, I want to compliment you and uh, your staff and uh, the, the people from uh, Provincial Health Services. I think uh, it's, it's been amazing uh, to see the way uh, Vancouver Coastal, Fraser, and uh, Provincial Health Services have stepped up. Uh, you know, I look at Washington, I look at the number of cases, mm-hmm. I look at the problems they had, and I, I'm, I'm not here to kick them down the road, but it's just, you know, it's it's a blessing that we have the BC healthcare system and Canadian healthcare the way it is designed and the people who are in it uh, doing the job they're doing. And it's it's just wonderful to be here and to not be in Kirkland, Washington. Thank you, John. I would agree. We have a great public health care system here. Uh, we want to work with the public to make sure the risk remains low, to reassure people uh, that uh, we're here on the lookout for spread. There are actions we can all take to reduce the impact of this, not just those of us working in public health, but you've heard uh, the, the new measures announced by the Prime Minister and here in British Columbia about returning travelers, staying home. Uh, that can be a way to prevent spread to your fellow citizens, um, th- that uh, people should be washing their hands frequently. It sounds mundane, but that's actually the best way of preventing infection, not going to school or work if you develop symptoms of a cold, even even mild symptoms. Uh, it, it's important not to spread whatever virus you may be carrying. No kidding. Dr. Patricia Daly, MD, Vice President, Public Health, Chief Medical Health Officer for the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure, John. You know, if you're a regular listener to my show, Back on the Beat, and heard the interview with Ross Beatty in December, Equinox Gold Corp. and Leah Gold Mining announced that they were entering into an agreement to combine 
uh, creating one of the world's top gold-producing companies uh, to continue as Equinox Gold. That merger was completed this week. The, the market cap for Equinox Gold is remarkable. Christian Milio is the CEO of Equinox Gold, and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, John. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, Christian. So tell me, uh, this has been such a bizarre time uh, in the money markets. Uh, people who know nothing whatsoever of uh, stocks, but you know, may have pensions and things of that nature, watching as the opening bell uh, rings and, and people seem to freak out and the thing goes down so much. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating time for you guys to be out there with such a big uh, market cap. How how is this all affecting you? Yeah, it's been an incredible time, and I mean, I guess it seems to rhyme a little bit with other periods in our history, of, you know, 2008, etc., where mm-hmm. we had various sort of financial crises that were triggered by certain events. But you know, we are a company that's put together to, in a sense, be in a great position to go through these periods of turmoil and uncertainty. And I guess gold is seen as sort of a natural hedge on occasion, and. Um, we were building this company during the last three years when no one paid any attention to gold. So Ross had a really good long-term premonition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was a fantastic uh, sort of design, uh, you know, and I guess, as you say, you know, at a time when when um, I guess you'd just be, you know, adverse to uh, what, what was uh, the, the price of gold back then. But what has happened? Tell us, for example, what is the design of the new Equinox Gold? Uh, where do you have operations, and how do how does Equinox fit into the the sort of um, uh, the vista of other companies in uh, in gold production? Yeah, so Equinox now is you know as you said the combination of the two companies. So we now have. You know, two mines in the western U.S. and California. We have one large one in Mexico, and we have uh, four operations down in Brazil. So we're quite a diversified, mm. scalable company that will be a million-ounce producer of gold in the next few years as we finish our expansion projects. And that wow. puts us in the top 20 in the world. So we hope that we're filling a bit of a void here when a lot of companies in our sector have not been growing, and, and companies like Gold Corp, which were big Vancouver names, have been bought out by large American gold mining companies and will be filling that void. And uh, Ross built Pan American Silver over about 25 years yeah. into a, a great long-term business. And in a sense, this will be a similar type vehicle in gold. And, you know, we've been building it when gold was eleven, twelve hundred $1,200 an ounce. Now we're at sort of fifteen, sixteen hundred $1,600 an ounce. And so the timing probably couldn't be much better. Yeah, fantastic. So the what we're talking about here is a Canadian company headquartered in British Columbia that is as you say, in the top 20 of the gold-producing companies in the world. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of investors have been looking for uh, a larger, more liquid vehicle to invest in, um, with the capital markets moving a lot more to ETFs and passive investors and funds. Mm -hmm. They tend to need larger names that they can invest in, and and we're now coming on the cusp of that with about a $2 billion market cap. So, it's an exciting time for us. Um, a bit of uncertainty at the moment, but uh, we see ourselves in the long run being well positioned here. 
Yeah. So, so put that in perspective for people who perhaps aren't really following, uh, you know, the, the, either the gold market or just stocks in general. Uh, what does it mean? This, this, I, I, when I interviewed Ross a month or so ago, um, I think we were looking at a possible uh, capitalization for this newly formed company of about $1.2 But that's gone up substantially. Actually, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. When we announced this merger in December, um, I think the combined capitalization would have been 1.2 to 1.4 billion when you put mm-hmm. the two together. Um, it was a nil premium merger. It was a logical fit of two companies of similar scale that would ultimately um, benefit from being larger and more investable. And I think uh, the reaction from investors on both sides is very positive. Both our stocks went up about 30 to 40 percent since announcement. Um, obviously, we've pulled back a little bit in the last few weeks here, oh, this, yeah. uh, this market hysteria. But um, since I guess you talked to Ross, you know, the market really has endorsed the deal. And not many deals get that kind of endorsement. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are, are deals where a company's paying a premium or a higher price for another company. And, and the markets tend to knock them back where yeah. both of our stocks went up. Yeah, that's amazing. So you pay a premium and then the stocks go up on top of that. Yeah, so it's it's, exactly. it's sort of contraindicated, but uh, this is an exceptional situation. Uh, so these these uh, mines that you have, California, Mexico, and where else was it? In Brazil, we have Brazil. four in Brazil. Four, and these are these are producing mines. We're talking about uh, you know we're not talking about an exploration company here. We're talking about a company that actually has you know real gold coming out of the ground. Yeah, no, we're we're actually producing at six of our mines and. Two more will be in production in the next couple of years, so we'll have eight mines. And that's a really good-scale mining company now with a lot of diversity. And, you know, a million ounces is not a magic number, but there are so few gold mining companies in the world that produce a million ounces of gold and have this kind of diversity. Yeah. So and it's it's all in North America and South America. It's not in, uh, you know, like Russia or some far off place where, you know, I guess political turmoil or other factors could uh, could impinge on the operations. Yeah, that was part of the thesis and what investors were asking us for. There, there are very few America's focused um, gold mining companies and you do limit the political risk. I think mm-hmm. you can never completely eliminate yeah. it, but having diversity does help. And you know, governments, regimes, and regulations change all over the world. And yeah. I've worked in West Africa and a lot of other places where there's oh a bit more uncertainty. And investors are really rewarding us for being focused on the Americas. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And now, now Ross has thrown a lot of his own money into this thing, hasn't he? Oh, you bet. He's probably $120 million into this. And, uh, wow. you know, he's had wonderful support for the business. And one of our key success factors has been access to capital and ability to invest and grow the business when there is no money coming into our sector. And it's obviously changing probably at the moment, but uh, Mm -hmm. he was one of the key benefactors that had helped us grow. So with the volatility that we're seeing in the marketplace right now, I mean, everybody's stock's gone down. It looks like yours has gone down perhaps less than some of the uh, other people in your, in your category. Uh, where do you see Equinox maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, six months from now, a year from now? We look at ourselves in sort of a, a two to four year window here where we'll be sort of a million ounce gold producer. You know, a lot of our peers have been in that three to five billion dollar market cap type range that are producing a million ounces or close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see ourselves as potentially sort of doubling in size from here. Um, 
there could be some ups and downs along the way, I think. And remember 2008 when we had this sort of liquidity crisis in the markets, yeah. everything got sold. It almost didn't matter what you did and where you were. If, if people could sell it to go to cash and be safe, mm-hmm. they tended to sell it. And gold took the same hit and so did our stocks then as well. But um, we had a great comeback in 2009 when people were looking to come back to the markets and for somewhere that's a bit more stable. And, um, you know, the gold sector seemed to come out of it very well. Yes. And, and in terms of the leadership of the company, in terms of the executives and the, the people who, uh, who are, you know, basically operating the mines and, and uh, looking at, at uh, how you, you bring your product to, uh, to market and so forth, do you feel that you've got the team that you want, that you've got uh, the skills and, and or are you going to have to go out and do some headhunting? No, at the moment, we, we're basically able to combine the two workforces and, and the leadership teams here will have a Vancouver head office mm-hmm. uh, very important to us and close to Ross who's the chairman and we'll combine the two teams and we're trying to take the best skills from either one unfortunately there are always a few casualties when you put two groups together but um, you know I'd say they have all the skills in-house and interestingly I had actually worked with Neil Woodyear who is the CEO of yeah. Gold for five years building a company in West Africa mm. um, during 2011 to 15 so I know a lot of the team from that side very well, and we're able to sort of combine them. And a lot of the operating team in parts of the Americas here that operate our mines are actually from that side. And um, I worked for five years with them. So there's a real commonality and and understanding of each other in the way we work. Very nice, which I guess is unusual in this type of a merger, but uh, just so so happens that you're able to pull the best of the best together. And uh, it's a Vancouver-based unified headquarters. Uh, and you've got the operations uh, up and down the Americas. Um, what's the symbol? How do people track it? Where should you uh, go to watch it? Yeah, we're retaining the Equinox Gold name, and, and the ticker symbol is EQX. doesn't change, and it's listed on both the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange American. So we'll, we'll continue on with that dual listing. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this. Thank you so much, Christian. It's a real pleasure to chat with you. Christian Milou, the CEO of Equinox Gold. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.